Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 275, The Lost Viking City on the Charles River. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm revisiting a topic from one of our very earliest episodes. Back in February 2017, our 17th episode covered a once-widely-held belief that seafaring Norsemen had established a thriving city along the banks of the Charles River, in an area spanning today's Cambridge, Watertown, Newton, and Weston. Back when that original episode was recorded, I didn't include very many primary sources, and my research and writing skills just weren't as good as they are now. The entire episode was only about 15 minutes long. And by the time you cut out all the filler material, the actual story was told in less than four and a half minutes. Today, I'm revisiting the story of the lost ancient city of Norumbega, which researchers at the turn of the 20th century believed had been founded by Leif Erikson himself. But before we talk about Vikings on the Charles River, I just want to pause and say a big thank you to a few sponsors of Hub History. First up, I want to say thanks to Fred W., who made a one-time contribution via PayPal. I know I always focus on our monthly sponsors, but one-time gifts like Fred's give me an important buffer to be able to deal with expenses that pop up unexpectedly. Speaking of our monthly sponsors, though, I also want to say a big thanks to our latest sponsor, Barbara B., Along with Barbara, I also want to acknowledge two longtime Patreon supporters who recently changed their support tiers. Jonathan P. just doubled his support from $5 to $10 a month, and Deborah R. recently cut her support from $50 to $5 a month. Now, it may seem odd for me to be thanking someone who reduced her support, but Deborah reached out last fall after I announced my five-figure copyright infringement settlement. She let me know that she couldn't do it forever, but she was bumping up her support temporarily to help me offset that potentially crippling and unexpected expense. Deborah became my very first $50 a month sponsor, and she kept that level of support up for months. To Barbara, Deborah, Jonathan, and everyone who supports the show over the long haul, thank you. You're the reason it's possible for me to go on making the show even when it comes pretty darn close to bankrupting me. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. We have support tiers starting at just $2 a month and going all the way up to $50 a month. So you can sponsor the show at whatever level you're comfortable with. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Back when I was a Back Bay tour guide, I always loved walking down the Comav Mall with my guests. It's a beautiful oasis of trees, playful dogs, and public art in the midst of the city. Starting from the public garden, I would walk past statues of Alexander Hamilton, Continental General Glover, former Mayor Collins, and the memorial to the firefighters killed in the collapse of the Vendome Hotel at the corner of Dartmouth Street. Continuing further down the line, there's a statue of abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, the beloved local historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, the beautiful women's memorial of Phyllis Wheatley, Lucy Stone, and Abigail Adams, 
and there's a statue of a random Argentinian president. Outbound from Mass Ave, we start very quickly running out of room for statues. But right at the Charles Gate, there's one more. Leif Erikson, the famous Viking. He stands on a tall plinth, gazing west toward Kenmore Square, with one hand raised to his brow to shade his eyes against the evening sun. At the time it was dedicated in 1887, the statue sat a few feet closer to Mass Ave. It was moved later for traffic purposes, but Leaf was already facing west. The statue was commissioned by Eben Horsford, who was a professor at Harvard for a decade and a half, and it was Horsford who delivered an address at the unveiling. Drawing on years of study, he explained the evidence that he had seen in ancient Icelandic sagas, that a Viking captain named Bjarni was blown off course on his way to Greenland and landed on an unknown shore. Following Bjarni's records, Leif Erikson was able to rediscover that unknown coast, and then another captain named Thorfinn further explored it. From this evidence in the sagas, Horsford announced in his address, Through Leif and Bjarni, the American continent was discovered by Norsemen, and Leif was the first European to set foot on its shores, the first to tread the soil of Massachusetts. In the years following this address, Professor Horsford expanded on his theory of the Norse exploration of Massachusetts many times, eventually making it clear that, in his own mind at least, the statue of Leif Erikson was gazing out across the Charles River at Leif Erikson's own home. In an 1889 paper titled The Problem of the Northmen, Horsford wrote, If anyone interested will walk from the junction of Elmwood Avenue with Mount Auburn Street, the residence of Professor Lowell in Cambridge, a few rods down the street to Jerry's Landing, and then follow the ancient Bank Lane to the point of crossing the rivulet draining the eastern slope of Mount Auburn into the Charles, he will be at the site of the objects of interest which had once been there, and which I had predicted might there be found. There are, in the inequalities of the surface, the remains of two long log houses and huts or cots possibly not less than five huts, along a declivity of moderate grade, some nearer, some farther from the water. The site of Leaf's house was near the south end of the ancient bluff of Simmons Hill, and immediately behind the point known as Jerry's Landing. You can walk down Mount Auburn Street in Cambridge today and see a small stone marker that Professor Horsford placed, which states... On this spot in the year 1000, Leif Erikson built his house in Vinland. Now, you might be surprised to learn that Leif Erikson had a house in Cambridge. And if so, you'll be even more surprised to learn that the Lower Charles River was the site of a thriving Norse city around the turn of the first millennium. In another paper in 1890, titled The Discovery of the Ancient City of Norumbega, Professor Eben Horsford described his astounding findings, not just in the ancient sagas, but inscribed in the earth and stone of the banks of the Charles River. As I prophesied from the literature of geography, the finding of Fort Norumbega at the junction of Stony Brook with the Charles and went to the spot and found it, and as I deduced the site of the remains of Leif's houses in Vinland from the necessities which the strict construction of the sagas required, and went to the spot where I had indicated that the remains had once been, and found them there more than a year after the prediction was announced, 
So I have arrived by inevitable deduction at the Seton Center of the early colony of Northmen in America. Here, besides the conveniences for piling undercover the mazer blocks, there were storehouses for dried salmon, for the pelts purchased in its season, and not impossibly for the Indian corn grown on the plains of Newton, Danvers, Millis, and Holliston. On the shores above and below were naturally shops for barter and dwellings for all classes, and, necessarily with the culture of the Northmen, provision for amusement, for public worship, and the wants of government, the all-thing to which these early, perhaps earliest, self-governing people were accustomed. Here was the ancient seaport of Vinland, for the colony that came after Thorfinn left, to which, in 1121, Bishop Upsey came to hold the symbols of the faith. The basin, wharves, docks, canals of this ancient seaport underlie the city of Watertown today and are connected with and serve its most prominent industries. Here came and went the commerce of the Northmen first, later the commerce of the Frenchmen, and possibly of still other peoples. Here, at the modern Watertown, was the ancient city of Norumbega. This wasn't the first time that he had described his discovery of Viking ruins along the Charles as the fulfillment of a prophecy. In that 1889 Problem of the Northman paper, Horsford said in response to a critic, The site of Fort Norumbega was first found in the literature of the subject. And when I had eliminated every doubt of the locality that I could find, I drove with a friend through a region that I had never before visited, of the topography of which I knew nothing, nine miles away, directly to the remains of the fort. These remains, and the region immediately about, were at once surveyed and mapped for me by the city engineer. In a certain sense, there was, in this discovery, the fulfillment of a prophecy. On the basis of the literature of the subject, I had predicted the finding of Fort Norumbega at a particular spot. I went to the spot and found it. No test of the genuineness of scientific deduction is regarded as superior to this. As far as the professor was concerned, that prophecy had led him to the site of a lost ancient city, described in the sagas and in many legends since then. In The Discovery of the Ancient City of Norumbega, he identified the site of that lost city as the banks of the Charles River, in a section bounded by Weston, Newton, and Waltham. In fact, Horsford had a stone tower built right along the bank of the Charles and Weston, on, coincidentally, Norumbega Road, in commemoration of this lost city. You can still go visit it today. Now, why would Vikings have established a city along the Charles? Their permanent home was in Greenland, which was lacking in one key resource. As more clever people than me have pointed out, Greenland is mostly ice, and Iceland is mostly green. In icy Greenland, there were essentially no trees that could be burned for fuel or cut for lumber. As the British settlers who made their homes here over 500 years later would discover... There were plenty of trees on our shores, large enough for any construction project, or even the masts of the Royal Navy. Horsford went on to describe the profitable industry that Leif Erikson and Thorfinn established here. Mazerwood, 
as I will presently explain to you, was the burrs are large warts that occasionally grow on certain trees, more frequently found in primitive forests, as oak. One variety is called bur oak, birch, hickory, maple, or ash. There were monuments of the presence of the Northmen on every square mile of the Basin of the Charles. I find I must at once tell you what these monuments are. We have no account of the transportation by the Northmen except by water. The mazer wood gathered by Thorfinn, we have just seen, was floated to the ship which lay in the Charles, and then taken from the water to be piled on a chiff or bluff, a bank, out of the reach of high tide to dry. We will assume what I cannot now stop to dwell on. I have discussed it elsewhere at length, that the spot where this occurred in Thorfinn's experience was at or near Jerry's Landing just above the ancient bluff known as Simmons Hill, by the river, the site of Leif's house, near the city hospital. That was the spot where a great industry in Vinland began. The Mazer blocks were felled and hewn at first along the neighboring bluffs on the Charles. At the base of these bluffs are still ditches or canals, into which the blocks may have been rolled, and along which, after the ditches were filled with water at high tide the blocks were floated down to where the ship lay. The ship was the gathering place. The blocks had been brought to the ship. They were not taken on board immediately, but removed from the water and carried by hand and piled on a cliff to dry. When the immediate shores of the river had been exhausted of this mazer wood, the shores of the tributaries flowing into the river became a field of activity, and the mazer blocks were sent floating down the streams and where the streams were remote from the bases of the slopes on either side, and sources of water were at hand, canals, or nearly level troughs, were dug to transport the blocks to the streams, and ultimately to the charles. We now see why dams and ponds were necessary at the mouths of the streams, to prevent the blocks from going down the charles without a convoy, and out to sea to be lost. Consider as an example the pond at the mouth of the Cold Spring Brook, opposite Watertown. I call its artificial wall below a boom dam. It's a good example. There's another striking one just below Newton Upper Falls, on the left bank, through the ridge. The volume of water of the stream spread out against the dam would become, on the brow, too shallow for the blocks to pass over. They would thus be saved as logs are, by a boom across the stream down which they're floating. There is an admirable canal walled along one side for a thousand feet along the west bank of Stony Brook, in the woods above the Fitchburg Railroad crossing between Waltham and Weston. The Cheesecake Brook is another, and Cold Spring Brook yet another. There's an interesting dry canal near Murray Street, not far from Newtonville. It may be seen from the railway cars on the right, a little to the east of Eddy Street approaching Boston. These are among the monuments, the forts, dwelling places surrounded by water and, in their day, also by stockades, gave examples of ditches, such as we have surrounding the ancient fort near the tower. The canals, ditches, deltas, boom dams, ponds, fishways, forts, dwellings, walls, terraces of theater and amphitheater scattered throughout the basin of the Charles are the monuments I had in mind when I said there was not a square mile draining into the river that lacked 
an incontestable monument of the presence of the Northmen. If you suddenly find yourself looking around and wondering why you never noticed that you're living among the ruins of a grand Norse society, you're not alone. In the summer 1900 issue of the journal American Anthropologist, Gerald Falk bemoans the general indifference of Boston-area residents to the Viking Empire that once surrounded their homes. Few persons living among the evidence of Norse occupancy in the Valley of the Charles River have ever paid any particular attention to them, taking for granted that they are the work of the earlier generations of English inhabitants of the region. Those, however, who are sufficiently interested in the study of antiquity to give more than a passing thought to these objects of unknown origin can see at once that many features connected with them not only would have been unsuitable for any of the necessities of the latter people, as they were then compelled to live, but could not have been turned to any practical use when completed. Such a conclusion is followed at once by the inference that they must pertain in some way to the social or political customs in vogue among the American Indians, it being quite natural thus to account for the existence within our territory of any form or result of human industry, in which we, with our present methods and habits, can see neither utility nor purpose. It does not require an extended acquaintance with aboriginal remains to convince an observer of the error of this inference. The two classes of works are so entirely different in many of their most distinctive characters that a person who has had an opportunity of becoming somewhat familiar with both will readily perceive that they must be due to people who could have had but little in common in their habits of life, nothing more than would be expected of different races living under conditions somewhat the same. Peculiar to the Valley of the Charles are the hut sites excavated in the hillsides, with their rows or piles of boulders to afford a resting place or foundation for the walls of the structures. The ditches that extend with practically a water level along the slopes of the hills. The dams that obstruct the river and many of its tributaries on both sides. The artificial islands, walled or protected with stones the stone walls along the margin of the streams between high and low tide. None of these has a counterpart in any known works which can be attributed to Indian habits of life. This is perhaps the right moment to mention that Professor Horsford may have been a Harvard professor, but he was definitely not a historian. At the time of the unveiling of the Leif Erikson statue, he was 69 years old, and he'd been retired from Harvard for almost a quarter century. He was a very wealthy man, perhaps not the equivalent of a billionaire today, but certainly a multi-multi-millionaire, and he seemed to suffer from the same delusion that some of the wealthiest Americans suffer from today. That being very good at one pursuit, good enough to get rich at it, means that you'll automatically be good at a different, unrelated pursuit. Ahem, Elon Musk. Growing up in Vermont and upstate New York, Eben Norton Horsford was always scientifically minded. As a kid, he collected fossils around the family farm and sketched plants and animals. As he got a little bit older, he got good grades in school and eventually got an appointment to college. After graduating in 1838, he taught math and natural history at a girls' school for a few years, and then he moved to Newark College and taught chemistry. Seeking to climb the academic ladder, he began specializing in food science. 
1908 biographical sketch from the New England Historic Genealogical Society notes, In 1844, he went to Germany to study chemistry and spent two years at Gießen under Baron Liebig. On returning to America, he was elected to the Rumford Professorship of the Application of Science to the Useful Arts at Harvard University. His investigations in chemistry led to inventions which proved to be of large use and of great commercial value. And in 1863, he retired from this position and gave his attention to manufacturers based upon these inventions. Interestingly, it was Professor John White Webster, subject of one of our earliest episodes, who recommended Horsford for the Rumford Chair. After his 16 years at Harvard, Horsford devised a new and better method for producing baking powder, and he founded the Rumford Chemical Works, which manufactured Rumford baking powder, which you can still find in grocery stores today. An obituary by Charles Jackson in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, of which Horsford was a member, catalogs some of Horsford's advances in food science. Other inventions of this class do not appear in the list of his scientific papers, but include his most valuable work. Such are his fundamental improvements in the art of making cider, at that time a large industry in New England, and the invention of condensed milk. Another of these important inventions was the phosphatic yeast powder, the object of which was to return to the bread the phosphates lost in bolting the flour. In 1856, he undertook the manufacture of this yeast powder, founding the Rumford Chemical Works for this purpose, which was enhanced later by the use of the acid portion of the yeast powder as a medicine and a beverage under the name of acid phosphate. Along with his contributions to the chemistry of cooking and eating, Evan Horsford was civically minded, as another obituary, this one from the Harvard Crimson, makes clear. Outside of his professional career, Professor Horsford engaged in many works of general utility. One of his first works on returning from Germany was to investigate and select the proper material for the service pipes of the Boston Waterworks. He was a member of the Committee for the Defense of Boston Harbor in the Civil War. He also devised a marching ration for the Army, which was very widely adopted. In 1873, he was one of the United States Commissioners to the World's Fair in Vienna. And in 1876, he was commissioner at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. So, Eben Horsford was a talented chemist, a successful entrepreneur, and an aging retiree. How did he become the leading proponent of the theory that Vikings settled in North America, one of the only proponents of the idea that their settlement was in Massachusetts, and a well-regarded, at least at that time, amateur historian? Jackson's obituary points to evidence that his interest in New England history was kindled while summering at his in-law's house on Shelter Island, a refuge for the wealthy off the tip of Long Island, near the Hamptons. He usually spent his summers on Shelter Island, and these were the parts of the year which he enjoyed the most. The scenery of the island is beautiful and restful, the climate delicious, and the old manor house with the estate which has been in the family from the time of the Indians, full of the most interesting associations. 
He soon became interested in studying the antiquities of the place and of the family, and erected monuments to the Quakers who were sheltered here from Puritan persecution. Afterward, these antiquarian studies took a broader field from a chance reference let fall by one of his guests to the legendary Norumbega, and furnished him with an engrossing and congenial occupation for the later years of his life. This interest in history, which was sparked by exploring his in-law's estate, came at roughly the same time that the idea that Vikings may have explored the shores of North America was first being put forth. And while Horsford didn't originate the idea, he quickly became its most famous and most wealthy supporter. In a 2007 paper in the New England Quarterly, Patricia Jane Roylance explains... Enthusiasm for a putative Viking settlement and the relics it left behind exploded around 1837, when Danish scholar Karl Raffen issued his Antiquitates Americanae. Uh, please excuse my terrible pronunciation of the Latin. In it, he argued that the ancient Icelandic sagas detailing the journeys of Leif Erikson and of subsequent adventurers supported a Viking discovery of the New World around the turn of the millennium. He translated the sagas and matched their geographic descriptions to elements of New England's topography. Raffin's assertion was followed by a number of books and papers by other authors, among them Asahel Davis, who published a lecture in 1840 describing the evidence that he believed lay in the sagas, concluding, And who is among the first known discoverers? who are not ready to answer Columbus. A different answer might surprise some. One is given in the name of the Norsemen. It is asserted that Leif, a Norseman, was the first to discover the country south of Greenland. Bjarni sailed from Norway, directed by the stars, for Greenland. But being driven by the winds for several days to the south, he saw an island, probably Newfoundland. The discovery of America by the Norsemen excites a vast deal of curiosity. And is it not a laudable curiosity that leads one to ascertain what white men first trod regions in which the modest wildflower wasted its sweetness on the desert air? As geography is one of the eyes of history, it would be well at this time to direct the attention to the map of North America, and to those of Massachusetts in particular. To understand why Horsford and so many of his New England contemporaries latched onto the idea that Vikings first discovered New England, we first have to understand why the very idea of discovering North America was important to them. With Roylance writing in her 2007 paper, The Vinland Hypothesis possessed enormous cultural cachet from the 1830s to the 1890s due largely to its appeal to regional pride and its implication in racial politics. The narrative of a pre-Columbian Viking visit to the area conferred distinction on the New England region, even as the very concept of European discovery provided a convenient distraction from the troubling specter of Native American land claims. New Englanders latched onto Raffin's theory. The region's economic and cultural stature was diminishing during this period, and locating the first European landfall and sustained settlement on their very doorstep flattered their bruised egos. 
Gerald Falk became one of Horsford's disciples, and in the issue of the Journal of American Anthropologist for the summer of 1900, he situates the supposed Norse ruins along the Charles River as a convenient replacement for evidence of the region's Native American past. Of those apparent habitations of the Norse, which bear some resemblance to what is of undoubted aboriginal construction, the dwellings of Leif and Thorfinn may first be considered. These are situated one on each side of a little stream which falls into the Charles at the Cambridge Hospital. They are rectangular in form and of a size sufficient to accommodate several families living in the old Scandinavian fashion. The walls were of stones and turf, principally the latter, and of a thickness altogether out of proportion with the size of the dwelling. Very little, if any, of that part which was above ground now remains, the earth being blown away and the stones scattered. But enough of the foundation may be seen to enable their outlines to be traced. It is probable that wood entered into their construction to some extent, but no trace of this would be left after such a great lapse of time. The longhouses of the Iroquois and some of the larger houses built by the Chippewa had the same general form as these two dwellings, but with that, the resemblance ceases. No foundation was necessary in the Indian house, and it was made principally or entirely of wood and bark. As a rule, the framework was made of posts set upright in the ground, to serve as supports, on which were fastened the poles and twigs that formed the walls. Horsford first announced this belief in the Viking settlement theory in a March 1885 letter to the president of the American Geographical Society. In it, he explores the root of the name Norumbega. Today, of course, it's the name of a road in Weston and the descriptor of the area along the Charles where he believed that Vikings lived. But it was also included in the earliest maps of New England by European cartographers so some of Horsford's contemporaries believed that it was of Norse origin. In his early letter, Horsford tried to establish exactly where the name Norumbega came from. As there were no proper Indian geographical names, and as Norumbega was descriptive of topographical or hydrographical features, the first task was to find its meaning. That might help in finding the locality. To this end, aid was long sought in vain in the vocabularies. It seemed an obvious Algonquin word, but in any form of ready recognition, any form that familiar dialectic variation would include, at least within range of my limited study, it eluded my search. Horsford's letter then includes a long discussion of how he discovered, or at least he thought he discovered, the root of the name Norumbega in native languages. He traced the evolution of Kennebec in Maine to Quinnipiac in Connecticut and theorized that pronunciation grew easier as one moved south along the coast, because life grew easier with warmer weather. And he explicitly compared that to difficult Norwegian pronunciations getting easier as one moved south to Italy. His letter continues, finding linguistic evidence of the ancient Viking Norumbega and the names of geographical features along the Massachusetts coast. 
Of course, all this presupposes that Norumbega did exist on Massachusetts Bay, so it was pretty easy for him to convince himself that he had found evidence to support his foregone conclusion. Of the Indian names preserved in the days of Captain John Smith, 1614, along the coast between the Merrimack and the Charles, there are but two that begin with N, Nahant and Nantasket. The latter, the headland on the south side of the entrance to Boston Harbor, the mouth of the Charles. We have already seen John Cabot's inscription of Norumbega as a country. As animated above, it will be seen that the name was a mere descriptive appellation, only permanent to an observer from a given point, and changing from Nahombik to Nahamkik with a change in the point of observation. This name, Nahombik, is the only name preserved to us between the Merrimack and the Charles that at all suggests Norumbega. Having read that passage and more of the letter that it was taken from, I got very confused as to how Eben Horsford had enough familiarity with Algonquian languages to perform this analysis, even if its conclusions were of doubtful reliability at best. Jackson's obituary notes that Horsford grew up near Charlotte, Vermont, as the son of a missionary to the Seneca Nation, and continues... It's interesting to note that a favorite amusement was collecting the fossils which abounded on his father's farm, as this recreation of his boyhood undoubtedly turned his thoughts toward the natural sciences, to which so large a part of his manhood was devoted. While at the same time, his early association with the Seneca Indians who flocked to his father's house in large numbers familiarized him with Indian words and pronunciation, and thus paved the way for the philological and archaeological studies of his older years. So, Horsford had some degree of exposure to Native American languages, but I still think we should take his conclusions with a bolder-sized grain of salt. While the marginalization of Native American heritage and land claims was probably an unconscious response and a product of his times, there was another impetus behind the Viking settlement theory. This was also a product of its times, but I think it was much more deliberate. By giving the Norsemen credit for settling Massachusetts, Horsford and his adherents were taking credit away from the Catholic Italian Columbus. The old Yankee families who could trace their lineage to the Mayflower or the Arbella fleet could imagine that these Vikings were among their ancestors, because the Norse had colonized Britain over a century before supposedly arriving here in Boston. Not only that, but the Scandinavian monarchies had been among the earliest to adopt Protestantism at the beginning of the Reformation. At a time when mass immigration from Italy was ramping up in a Boston that was still reeling from the influx of Irish immigrants 40 years earlier, Protestant Yankee Boston was looking for a hero. Along with his linguistic analysis, the 1885 Horsford letter that I just quoted from also describes how he examined the Viking sagas and textual accounts from early European explorers, and he came up with three conclusions. I submit, first, that the site of the landfall of John Cabot in 1497 has been determined to be Salem Neck. The Norum, the neck to one standing on it, of the Norumbega of Cabot, 
and the Nahum of the Nahum Beak of Ogilby and Smith. The first land seen may have been Cape Ann, or possibly the mountain Agamenticus. Second, that the town of Norumbega, on the river of Norumbega of Aliphants, and the fort of Norumbega, and the village of the Agency of Thevet, were on the Charles River between Riverside and Waltham, at the mouth of the Stony Brook. Third, that John Cabot preceded Columbus in the discovery of America. I am very truly yours, E. N. Horsford. In Horsford's mind, it was very important that Christopher Columbus did not reach the mainland of the North American continent until his fourth voyage in 1502, while Cabot, who sailed on behalf of the English king Henry VII, arrived in North America five years earlier. According to Horsford, Cabot was following in the footsteps of Leif Erikson by landing at Salem Neck, close to Erikson's one-time home. I should mention here that modern historians believe that both Cabot and the earlier Norsemen came no further south than Newfoundland. In her 2007 paper in the New England Quarterly, Patricia Jane Roylance emphasizes how this assertion met with both excited embrace and skeptical rejection from the history community in Greater Boston. Elevating Leif Erikson had the effect of demoting Christopher Columbus, and locating ground zero of European presence in the Western Hemisphere in the future mainland United States, in contrast to Columbus's landfall in the West Indies. Thus, European discovery could be claimed as a national, not simply a continental, legacy one conferring special prestige on New England. Opinions, however, did not always map neatly onto regional affiliations. The Massachusetts Historical Society and the Harvard Intelligentsia tended to discredit the Vinland hypothesis, in large part because they thought that it detracted from the acclaim due to the Puritan pioneers. Many of these individuals had descended from first-generation Puritan settlers, and they regarded themselves as the principal intellectual conservators of the Puritan legacy. Others had written books about Columbus to coincide with the nation's centennial and the quatercentenary of Columbus's voyage, and they were both professionally and monetarily invested in the standard story of discovery. The Watertown Historical Society, on the other hand, was delighted with the Viking excitement. Watertown, which had far fewer claims to historical greatness than its neighbors in Cambridge and Boston, had been identified as the probable site of Norumbega, the Vinland Settlement's main town. Understandably, then, Watertown's historically-oriented residents embraced Vinland scholarship, even though many considered it highly dubious, with the hope that it would enhance the town's status. When I first started researching Horsford and the Viking settlement theory, I thought that maybe his views were the historical consensus, or at least a local consensus. After all, we have the plaque dedicated to Leif Erikson along Mount Auburn Street in Cambridge, the statue of Leif on Com Ave, and the tower that Horsford built in Weston, so it really seems like an accepted theory. A skeptical 1891 review of one of Horsford's books in the journal Science says otherwise. He believes that he has discovered its stone-built walls, its ancient stone-paved streets, and the remains of its docks and wharves. 
Other local antiquaries see in these remains merely the vestiges of some dams, drains, and stone fences of the early New England farmers. And it appears that Professor Horsford has not succeeded in persuading any of the resident investigators of his interpretation that he has so much at heart. Horsford's obituary in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences describes how even academic opposition to his Norumbega findings helped raise his profile and get more attention for his theories. These conclusions of his met with much opposition, as was to be expected but they brought him an invitation to take part in the scientific proceedings of the Society of Americanisti in Spain, in commemoration of the discovery of America by Columbus, to which he responded by the paper on the name of America, and also led to his creation by the King of Denmark as a knight commander of the third grade, of the Order of Dannenbrog, in October 1892, an honor which has found few parallels in America. Writing about Norse discoveries in America in the Bulletin of the American Geographical Society in 1901, Yule Dieserud questioned whether it was possible that Vikings reached Massachusetts at all. The question now before the historian and antiquarian is not whether the hardy Norse sailors of the 11th century reached the American continent after having established themselves in its antechamber, Greenland. The question is how far south they proceeded and whether or not they established a permanent settlement in any of the newly discovered regions. The first of these points can only be settled in one of two ways. Either there must be discovered unmistakable archaeological traces of the Norsemen of that remote period, or the geographical hints and descriptions given in the sagas may be followed and a locality fixed upon chiefly by process of exclusion. The former of these methods has been repeatedly employed its climax having been reached in the well-meaning but exceedingly doubtful conjectures of Professor E. N. Horsford. All attempts along this line thus far have, however, been fruitless of results. Notice that he doesn't question whether the Norsemen reached the North American continent. The Icelandic sagas were considered a reliable historic record at the time, and they still are, with one asterisk. The sagas were passed down by word of mouth for something like 400 years before finally being written down. As an oral history, today's scholars treat the sagas as a reliable source for the general outline of history, but they've learned to discount the finer details found within the stories. By the time Asahel Davis published his account of the Viking discovery of Newfoundland in 1840, that asterisk didn't exist yet. In his account, and other early proponents of the theory who influenced Horsford, Davis makes tremendous leaps of logic from very sketchy details to explain how the Norsemen made their way from the coast of Newfoundland to our Boston environs. They sailed southwesterly with a fair wind two days before seeing land again, when they passed down a promontory, probably the east side of Cape Cod, stretching east and north, then turning west between an island, Martha's Vineyard, and the mainland. They entered a bay, Narragansett Bay, through which a river flowed, Taunton River, when they came to anchor and went ashore. Resolving to spend the winter here, they called the place Leafsboothier, or Place of Booths. 
Here, finding grapes very plenty, they called the place Vinland, or Wineland the Good. If we accept the Icelandic sagas as a historical source, a close reading of the text provides evidence that Vikings from Greenland explored the North American coast and found three lands. Helluland, Markland, and Vinland, being rich in flat stones, timber, and wine grapes, respectively. In his 1901 paper, Dieserud accepts the broad strokes of this explanation, but questions Horsford's conclusion that Vinland lay along the banks of the Charles. Where on the American coast can anything like it be found? It is only too plain that the region around Boston does not fit the description at all. In order to make it at all probable that the Boston region was meant, Professor Horsford had to chop up the saga of Thorfinn in a most uncalled-for and pitiless manner. And the worst of the matter is that he could not even then make his case good. While it is evident from the context of the saga that Thorfinn sailed to the southwest, proceeding until he came to a river that flowed from the east toward the west, at the mouth of which he lay by, Professor Horsford succeeds in making himself believe that this applies wonderfully well to the Charles River, which flows in that direction for a little distance between Cambridge Cemetery and Warren Bridge. This is assuredly giving us stones for bread. The same wonderful brand of logic makes Thorvald explore the same river, when it stated in the saga that they proceeded along the western coast from Leif's booths. It is only eclipsed by the ease with which he makes him return to Gurnet from Cape Cod, when the saga expressly states that they sailed away thence to the eastward. As pointed out by many, the chances are, however, very small that anything will be found for the simple reason that the Norsemen, as already mentioned, evidently failed to effect a settlement of the country. The sagas do not contain a single statement from which to draw the opposite conclusion, and Professor Fisk justly lays stress on the fact that no descendants of European domestic animals were ever met with in North America 500 years later. The only structures erected by the explorers, probably, were the dwellings of Thorfinn, possibly wooden-framed houses resting on cornerstones or wooden blocks, for which it would be vain to look at this late date. The fish pits dug in the sand would not, under favorable circumstances, last for 50 years, and the palisades would rot down long before the advent of the 19th century. An axe or sword blade might be found, it's true, but until some such relic is produced, we shall be justified in expecting it to turn up in Nova Scotia, rather than in New England, however fervently our patriotism may desire the latter alternative. Eben Norton Horsford passed away in 1893, at the height of his advocacy for the Norse settlement theory. The torch would be taken up by his daughter, Cornelia Horsford. Just after her father's death, Cornelia led an excavation in Cambridge that she believed uncovered the ruins of the home of Norse explorer Thorfinn Karlsefni, the results of which were published in the March 1898 issue of National Geographic. In this article, she compares the foundation that she uncovered to typical Icelandic houses from the Viking era. The Ruins found where one had every reason to hope to find traces of the houses built in Vinland by Leif Erikson and his followers, 
did not differ in their essential features from those of Iceland in the saga time. The situations were similar. The walls were laid in the same way and were of the same thickness, and the fireplaces were constructed as they were in the habit of constructing them at home. Probably the reader will contrast these different dwellings of the Norsemen with those of the native tribes of North America. From the magnificent ruins of Copan to the long, narrow houses of the Iroquois, and will detect the similarities and differences between these and the habitations of the Greenland Eskimos. The Spanish, Dutch, French, and English explorers visited and might have built houses on these shores, but in Europe, no houses of this type are found outside Iceland. A dwelling usually consisted of three apartments, a hall or principal room, in which there was always a fireplace, a sitting room for the women, and a storeroom or pantry. These apartments were like small houses, each with a separate roof, but attached to each other, with passages through the thick walls. Nearby were usually one or more small outhouses. These dwellings were built on the surface of the ground, which was probably leveled when necessary. The floor was of firmly beaten earth. The walls were one and a half meters thick and from one to one and a half meters high. The inner side was built of unhewn stones and the interstices were filled with earth. The outer side was of alternate layers of turf and stones and the space between the two sides was filled in with earth kneaded hard. That 2007 paper by Patricia Roylands points out just how attractive this theory was to New Englanders like the Horsfords and their followers, even as serious historians distanced themselves from their conclusions. Proponents of the Massachusetts landing theory made comments like this. Thorfinn Karl Sefni, who followed Erickson to Vinland, planted the first colony in AD 1007 within a few rods of the present site of the Cambridge Hospital. By positing the Cambridge Hospital, now Mount Auburn Hospital, as an orientation point on a map of Viking settlement, adherents physically juxtaposed the present to the past. The image of a historic, centuries-old enterprise having occupied the same ground regularly tried by 19th-century residents of Cambridge in their walks along the Charles River added a frisson of delicious proximity to thoughts of Vinland. The skeptical reviews of their work that had been a background hum during Eben Horsford's lifetime became a roar during Cornelia's era. Long before she died in 1944, archaeologists had completely refuted the Norse origins of any artifacts uncovered on the Charles, and historians had debunked the textual leaps made by the Horsfords and their antecedents to find local landmarks in the Icelandic sagas. Nevertheless, elite Yankees retained a deep affinity for the Scandinavian countries well into the new century, as seen in a greeting sent from Harvard to a university in Oslo, Norway in 1911. The same shores of New England, where the Puritans and Pilgrims planted their first institution of learning, were, we believe, more than six centuries earlier discovered and, as Vinland the Good, enjoyed by the great Norse seafarers Leif Erikson, Thorvald, and Thorfinn. Prominent Harvard scholars who have made the early voyages of the Norsemen recounted in their great sagas a favorite study, 
have felt not least interest and inspiration in the fact that these discoverers were representatives of the glorious Norse Icelandic culture, which in those dark days shone a bright northern light to the rest of the world, while they, at the same time, were descendants of pilgrims who, to escape oppression in Norway, had in their Viking ships immigrated to Iceland, just as the English Mayflower pilgrims came later to Plymouth. After quoting from so many scholarly articles dismissing the idea that Scandinavians settled along the Charles, and predicting that evidence that the Norse had reached North America might never be found, it may come as a surprise to learn that that's exactly what happened. In 1960, archaeologists uncovered evidence of a thousand-year-old Norse settlement on the extreme northern tip of the Canadian island of Newfoundland. Decades of excavation eventually revealed the ruins of eight Norse structures near the mouth of a stream on a shallow, north-facing bay. Unlike the speculations by Eben or the supposed excavations by Cornelia Horsford, these buildings were constructed of sod laid over wooden frames. Artifacts at the site have conclusively tied these structures to Scandinavians of the era around the first millennium and dendrochronology and carbon dating confirmed that the buildings were constructed at just about that time. However, all the other details of the site are contested, with estimates of the number of residents ranging from 20 to 200, and the duration of the settlement going from a single season to 100 years. While the details aren't agreed upon, the timing, artifacts, and the presence of grapevines in the area provide strong support for the actual existence of Vinland as described in the sagas. The discovery of this site inspired the resurgence of the same frauds and hoaxes that both inspired and followed Eben Horsford's publications. Last July, co-host Emerita Nikki and I took a road trip to New Haven, and we visited the Beinecke Library at Yale, where we just happened to arrive while they were displaying some of the most rare and historically significant maps from their collections. I got to see everything from Galileo's maps of the moon, to pre-Columbian maps of the Atlantic world, to a Spanish map of Aztec Tenochtitlan from the early 1500s. One of the historic maps that was on display was a -a one-of-a-kind map showing the location of Vinland in relation to Greenland, Iceland, England, and other coastlines that would have been familiar to Viking explorers. The map was approximately dated to the year 1450, but it included some of the same sort of asterisks that accompanied much of the evidence of Horsford's era. The accompanying interpretive sign noted that the map was donated to Yale in 1965, while the excavations in Newfoundland were at their peak. Sometimes, when something seems too good to be true, it is. The map seemed too perfect, and experts immediately questioned its authenticity. It was on real 15th century parchment, but... By 1973, the university had declared the map to be a forgery. Later testing showed that the parchment was taken from a 1450 book by Vincent of Bouvet, but the map was drawn using modern ink. Even real evidence of Vikings in North America isn't safe from cranks and loons. 
To learn more about Eben Horsford and the legend of the lost city of Norumbega, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 275. I'll include fraudulent and fallacious maps, including some that inspired Horsford and the 1965 forgery that I saw at Yale last summer, as well as sketches and diagrams created by the Horsfords and their followers that they believe demonstrated the Norse origins of the artifacts that they found along the Charles. I'll link to about 10 books, papers, and letters by the Horsfords and their contemporary followers, as well as some of the earlier writings by people like Asahel Davis and Yule Dieserud that inspired the Norse settlement theory in the first place. I'll link to the biographical sketch of Eben Horsford from American Ancestors and to two of his obituaries. Plus, I'll link to all the modern articles that I quoted from for context. Before I let you go, I have some listener feedback to share. Back in March, I released a bonus episode that I called my Personal Evacuation Day, where I talked about some changes in my life that might end up forcing changes to the show's format. Talking about everything from my aging dog Duke's health, to my shattered ankle, to the new job that I started a few days later. I got a lot of supportive feedback, starting with this email from a listener named Rob. Jake, it took a second to pin this response to your own personal evacuation day. First off, congrats on the exciting new change. I hope it's going well. I also hope your dog is enjoying its twilight time. I just wanted to let you know that whatever you need to make the podcast fit into your life, I'm behind it. I'm of the less frequent episodes camp, and would be glad to keep my support going, no matter how you have to change or pause. Would a quarterly episode not sound even sweeter? Thank you again for all you do, Rob. Listener Doug struck a similar chord, urging me to keep making the show, but to cut down on the frequency of episodes if and when I can't keep up with my current production schedule. Hi, Jake. Congratulations on your new job. I vote for keeping each episode the same length, but doing them less often. Whatever you decide, I will remain a devoted binge listener. I listened to the Eric J. Dolan episode, and it was fascinating. Wishing Duke well. Best regards, Doug. Ted's email made me wonder whether he, Doug, and Rob were actually all the same listener writing to me from different addresses. Hi, Jake. I just listened to your special five-minute podcast from March 17th. First off, good luck on your new job, and I hope that your ankle heals up quickly. My suggestion is that if you have to limit how much time you spend on each episode, you should offer them less frequently but in the same format that you've been doing your excellent presentations in. They are a valuable resource for those of us who value learning about local history, as well as for future generations. I also hope you continue to appear at History Camp as well. All the best to you, and thank you for doing what you do. Ted The listeners have spoken. If I ever can't keep up with the pace of production... I'll skip weeks or sprinkle in more reruns, but I'll keep our current format just as long as I possibly can. As an update, I should mention that my new job is going pretty well. I'm less than two months into it, so I'm still learning the ropes, 
But so far, I have been able to keep researching and writing new episodes by staying disciplined and very carefully scheduling my evenings and weekends. Senior Executive Podcast Producer Duke, aka my 14-year-old dog, is doing pretty well for a 14-year-old dog. He had a close call last month when his pain was going up and his mobility was going down. But the vet was able to find a new combination of meds that has him out and enjoying his daily walks again. We take it day by day and week by week because of his age, but I don't think his time has come yet. And my ankle is slowly healing, much more slowly than I would prefer. I do physical therapy twice a week, and we're working on getting normal function back. As of about a week ago, I got clearance to start walking around the house without crutches or my boot. I'm still mostly using crutches for walks outside the house, and it's going to be a very long time before I'm able to get back to running, but being able to walk without assistance at all has been very good for my morale. A couple of months ago, I asked listeners to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. At the time, I was trying to bury a one-star review from a jerk who said that he wasn't sure what I was going for with the show, but it is awful. Listeners responded, and several folks wrote new reviews, which did, as I hoped, help bury that one-star jerk. First up is a review from somebody who calls themselves Handsome Jimmy One Shoe. If you dig Boston, subscribe to this podcast, and you'll dig it even more. The history taught to us in school necessarily consists of insufficiently brief summaries of large and complex events. It's incomplete, but it's the best schools can do given their limited time. This podcast takes its time doing deep dives into somewhat smaller but equally compelling stories filling in the gaps, and rounding out Boston's story for interested readers. Try it, subscribe to it, review it, and donate if you can. If I ever run into the host and the host emerita, I'm buying them around. Somebody with the screen name SJM also left a very complimentary review. My favorite history podcast... Boston has so much to offer. The Hub History Podcast does an amazing job uncovering lesser-known stories and figures, or taking a new and different angle and approach to well-known events that you think you've already learned everything about. I love that less common and underrepresented stories, voices, and people from our city's history are featured. Memory Loader flattered me by directly refuting that one-star jerk. Fantastic, informative, and quirky podcast. This is one of my favorite history podcasts. Boston is coming up on its 400th anniversary and has a wealth of stories. I think Jake does an excellent job of telling them. Witches, redcoats, explosions, art and architecture, and more get a fascinating spotlight. Somebody calling themselves the credibility specialist also didn't think I was awful, and their review got straight to the point. I took some time today to listen to your show. Hub History is a fantastic podcast with great info, advice, and perspectives. You won't regret listening to and learning from the podcast. 
Now, credibility specialist, memory loader, SJM, and handsome Jimmy One-Shoe all forgot one key thing. Not one of them sent me an email to claim their reviews so I could send them a sticker. At the end of March, I asked for suggested show topics on Twitter. I got some good ideas. Hiker Girl says, I remember reading a newspaper article from the 18th century about a camel visiting Boston for the first time. And then there was also a lion during the same time period, I think. It always surprises me how many elephants made it to Boston. Derek L. suggested, Interview Stephen Bosher about his book, Boston in Transit, Mapping the History of Public Transportation in the Hub. Also ask him his views about the future of the MBTA. Marie D. noted, I came across an incident report in 1842 in Boston newspapers about a riot in the North End between U.S. Navy Irish sailors and African-American sailors from a revenue cutter. Ed O. suggested an episode topic just days before I released episode 272, which touched on just the man that Ed wanted to hear about. James Otis, the leading light of early revolutionary Boston, whose spark burned brightly but all too briefly. Remarkably poignant story of a man who was a hero to Sam and John Adams, Hancock, and all the rest, but for whom traumatic injury and troubling mental health was career-ending. Along with all those tweets, we got a couple of show suggestions by email. One of them is such a great idea that I'm actually going to keep it pretty close to the vest for now. The last suggestion came from Brian. Hello. I just heard in the Court Street Mutiny episode that you're from Reedville. I thought you might be interested in the story of William B. Gould, who escaped slavery and then served in the Union Navy during the Civil War. He settled in Dedham, just steps from the Reedville border. We are erecting a statue of him this Memorial Day weekend. Hope you can join us. Keep up the good work. Brian. I got back to Brian and let him know that Gould's recent biography is actually sitting on my to-be-read pile right now, and I'm hoping to do a show about him in the future. In the meantime, Brian's going to keep me up to date on the developments in the park that now bears Gould's name, just up the street. I love getting listener feedback, whether you have a topic to suggest, a one-star review to bury, or a solution for what I should do when I'm drowning in work and having trouble getting a show out on time. If you'd like to leave me some feedback on this episode or any other, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and the most active on Twitter. If you're on Mastodon, you can find me as at hubhistory at better.boston. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. I mean it. Don't forget. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>